0: Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us, you know that last week we started a series called Come Let Us Adore Him. We are mirroring this Advent devotional by Paul David Tripp. There's actually still one copy at the back if you want to pick it up. So as a church family, we're doing a little bit of scripture reading, a little bit of study each day. Um... Peanuts, Cracker Jacks, last copy of the book. Pastor Dennis has it. So, And so the purpose of being in Scripture a little bit each day is that Christians believe, and this is one of the many things that makes us kooky, we believe the Bible was written by God, and it says about itself that it is basically Christ in his essence, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us is how the gospel of John introduces Jesus. And so that means everything that God has said is manifested in Jesus. When God speaks to us, we are encountering Jesus. And so to get a daily dose of God is the whole point. Uh, If Christmas really is God putting on flesh, coming to our world to live the life that you and I should have lived but didn't, to then die the death that you and I should have died for our guilt before God but didn't, if all of that is somehow true, we would be crazy to allow Mercedes-Benz to speak more messages into our minds during December than the God who did that for us. How many of you guys know Mercedes-Benz has a message for you this Christmas? It involves a ginormous bow from Hobby Lobby about four feet across Every year I'm so confused, I don't know how a gift comes with a payment. If a rich person paid cash and literally gave me the deed, that's a different story. Hallelujah, right? I'm all about that. So, today's sermon is entitled War and Peace. You're going to find out why real quick. Moses writes this chapter 3 verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Is that what God said? And She modified it a little bit, didn't she? You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband as a Christmas gift who was with her and he ate it too. So that moment, you know, it doesn't feel like a Christmas text. I just feel like I have to doctor it up somehow. We'll get there. You'll understand in a minute, this is a Christmas text. But in the moment you're like, what? Snake, naked people, what's going on? At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Right? This is just a little marriage advice from Adam. Do not throw bride under the bus. Okay. Okay. The serpent, uh, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. You guys ready for it? And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He. He. God was speaking in plural, offspring. And then he spoke in plural again. Offspring, your offspring, her offspring. And then all of a sudden... Masculine singular, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. If you're in a cage fight, do you want a heel wound or a head wound? Which one sounds worse? Which one's worse? God said to his enemy, before he has said anything to the man and the woman of the consequences of shattering the cosmos, before he has said anything to you and me about our misbehavior, He says to his enemy, a man is going to be born from this woman, from her offspring. There will be continual strife and hatred between your offspring and her offspring, and he'll crush you for what you have done today. You don't have to wait to Matthew to find the gospel when you read the Bible. Only a very, very loving father would be enraged at the serpent right now for what he's done. Because that serpent is not his child. The man and the woman are. God doesn't have to, you know, fight with moral relativism right now well, he's, he's a snake, and snakes are valuable too, and... No. No. Do you know how much God loves you? Note-takers, when humanity declared war against God, we died spiritually, but God promised a future peace verse 16 then he meaning god said to the woman i will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain will you give birth and you will desire to control your husband hyperfeminism but he will rule over you chauvinism the two terrible extremes this is what you have chosen total horizontal discord because of vertical rebellion against your creator It's going to be so hard for men and women to treat each other as equals from here on out. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains, by the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Does a curse on the ground affect women as well, or just men? Provision is cursed. How do we pay the bills? How do we put food on the table? It's all cursed because of Adam. And then God says, and you're going to die. Death is now a thing. It wasn't a thing before this. Do women die or do just men die? Because, see, American rugged individualism doesn't know what to do with this text. I thought that was Adam's curse. Women should just live forever and dudes die. It'd be fair, right? That's Adam's curse. But apparently what happens to the family happens to the family. There are more communal implications to our world than we think. We just watched the spiritual death of humanity. We just watched an unbelievable tragedy. And even though Christmas is supposed to be filled with happy feelings, if you think you're healthy and I announce to you that there's a cure for cancer and it's this little pill, take it, you will be confused by me because you think you're healthy and I'm offering you a cure. Does that make sense? We would love to be swallowed up in the positive emotions of Christmas. I would too. Hallmark Channel fluff. But Christmas comes after two-thirds of the story of God. There's a lot that happens... Most of it's brutal. (laughs) It's dark. God's children and image bearers doing horrible things to God's children and image bearers. Two-thirds of it. Just to prove that we couldn't save ourselves from what we'd unleashed. I was on YouTube yesterday considering putting in a movie clip into this part of the sermon And then I realized somebody would get grumpy if I showed a clip from a rated R movie that wasn't about the death of Jesus. And so I decided to skip, If you haven't seen Braveheart, you need to see Braveheart. It's like a master's degree in leadership in three hours. If you've seen it, um, you may recall. For everybody else, let me bring you along. It's not historically accurate, but that's okay. William Wallace is starting to lead a rebellion of Scotland against England because they've been treated so poorly for so long. And the rightful heir to the throne, Robert the Bruce, he just pleads with him to join. Like, we will follow you. I would follow you. Just lead us. And in what might be The most gripping, or at least second most gripping, emotional scene of the entire movie. William Wallace is on a horse chasing down the King of England after a battle to kill him and end this whole thing. And one of the King's deputies or whatever says to this knight next to him, protect your king, and you can't see who it is because he's in full armor. And the knight goes after, turns around and goes after William Wallace and they fight. And in the struggle, the knight's helmet comes off, and William Wallace realizes that Robert the Bruce is the one who is defending the King of England instead of leading a war against him. And he is paralyzed. He had a knife at his throat, he drops the knife. He just sits down prone on the ground, even though theoretically this guy was gonna kill him. You should see the look in his face if you hadn't seen it. It's like, not you. Not you. Anybody but you. It can't be. And exhausted from battle with blood all over his face, William Wallace just kind of collapses and lays down in the grass. (laughs) Like, what's the point? The one we're supposed to be following to lead us against the enemy has decided to cut a deal. And if you're new to church, that's what I need you to feel and to understand about humanity, deciding that God is not trustworthy and we're going to take things into our own hands it might, that scene might give us the smallest glimpse into how God felt that day. Because it was not just some angelic being betraying him like Satan. It wasn't a deer deciding that it wanted to be a pig or a rock deciding it wanted to be a tree. Humanity, we were the only and are the only ones made in the image of God, as already declared in the first two chapters this special chosen treasure of God. If there was anybody that should have seen and felt and desired a continued unbroken relationship with God, it was humanity because God walked in the garden with us. There was no sin, there was no mistrust or distrust. There were no lies, there was no death. There was no envy, and there was no coveting things that I don't have. There was no murder. Everything was perfect. That is the betrayal that happens in the story of God. And it is an unbelievable betrayal. In Braveheart, it is demanded the emotion of an actor doing a very good job showing on his face the betrayal an entire orchestra playing music to help you go along emotionally and realize the gravity a lot of setup and we as a culture here in 2019 surrounded by the trappings and images of christmas trees and lights in the mall uh, as melissa said even gospel music pumped echoing around in the mall that we may or may not actually ever hear. Some of us, when we are told that Jesus Christ was born and became a human being, it just makes no sense whatsoever because nobody has taken us for the whole journey to bring us to this point. No one told us that there was a loving and benevolent God who made the world. Nobody told us that we rebelled against him and shattered the cosmos. Nobody told us that humanity had tried over and over again to do things our own way. Very shortly after this, we're building a tower to heaven, like physically. You know how silly that sounds? Hey, we're going to get enough bricks that we're going to build a tower that can reach up to heaven. It's going to be awesome. That was very shortly after this in the grand scheme of things. And so we have to do just a little bit of Genesis 3 if we're going to understand Christmas. Christmas is a baby, a God-man, who's going to live a perfect life so that he can go to a cross and swap his perfect life for my filthy one. So he goes to the cross condemned for what I deserved. And I walk into heaven one day receiving all that Jesus deserved. And if that is what he accomplished on the cross, it had to have been accomplished only by someone who is morally perfect, who lived that life that I should have lived. So he had to be born. The reason for Christmas is Good Friday and Easter, period. That's it. And so I want to connect the dots today. Our culture right now is trying to do all of the color schemes and the color palette and the right songs of Christmas, without a cross, without an empty tomb on Easter morning, and without a demonic being and two the only two perfect human beings that caused the brokenness in the first place. Christmas only has its context if God made the world if humanity broke our relationship with God, and if that God is so loving and benevolent that he insists on fixing that relationship. That is the only context that makes any sense out of Christmas. Otherwise, it's a it's a fat, jolly old elf. And it's like, okay, that's cute for a minute. And then you find out he's not real. And then you're like... Okay, so what is this? This is just this old old, archaic holiday of gift-giving. I guess it's all just commercialism. Like, we're twisting in the wind. What is this all about? Does it actually matter? Well, I say this a lot. It actually matters if this book is true. Um, I know not all of us on planet Earth believe that, not by a mile. If this is totally made-up nonsense, Christmas can be whatever you want it to be. Um, You know, make it up as you go. Paint by the numbers. Um, If this is true, however, everything changes. If this is true, not only is Christmas true, but if Christmas is true, Christ's death on a cross is true. His resurrection of his own body is true. Conquering Satan, sin, and death, the three villains humanity has no power to deal with. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 2. If you have the hardback black Bible that we passed out, that's page 851. We will not spend as long on this passage, um, but it is the link that is taking us where we're going. Chris already read this for us. So a man named Simeon, he has it revealed to him by God that he will not die until he sees the Lord's Messiah, this deliverer, this savior of Israel. How cool. I wish I could preach this whole text. We don't have the time today. But listen one more time to what Simeon says to Mary about her eight-day-old baby. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. Excuse me? Where on earth did we get this always smiling, fluffy Jesus? Where did we get this Jesus is just a a really cool, hip philosophy professor down at Stanford? Yeah, he has some cool things that he said. Like, where did we get this? Even some of us who grew up in church, Christmas was only ever positive, encouraging. Gay love. But we read the actual Bible, and what is said about an eight-day-old baby cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. Sounds like divisiveness to me. In our culture, we love to say that divisiveness is like this end-all. You're always bad if you divide. But you divide, why? Because you have an opinion. He just said, your son's going to be divisive. What do you think Mary's thinking right now? Huh. Not way to win friends and influence people. Sounds like he's going to make enemies. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. So if you're new to church or if you need a reminder... Prophecy is a human being saying something directly from God. Does that sound scary to you? It should. Anybody abused that one before? God told me, follow me. That's That's been done a, a few million different times. It's so serious that the old Mosaic law said that if somebody prophesied something, if it did not come true, stone them to death. That's how serious God is about people who would dare to say, I am speaking for God. That's how big of a deal it is. And the New Testament is a little bit gentler, saying those of you who put yourself forward as Bible teachers, you know that we're gonna be judged more harshly in the end, right? So be careful. Be real careful when you say, I'm going to tell you what God said. I'm doing it right now. It should put terror into me before I stand up here. And this prophecy does not say, Mary and Joseph, a sword is going to pierce your soul. So, Simeon is passing along by the power of the Holy Spirit that by the time Jesus is crucified, Joseph will already be dead. God knows everything. There's nothing that is too complex for him. And for those of you Bible nerds right now, why the Bible doesn't say Joseph died? Oh, yes, it does. Jesus from his cross says to John, John, take care of my mom. And only the oldest male in the family had the authority and responsibility to take care of mom. That means Joseph had died. Jesus, to the last, loved his mom, took care of his mom. And God knows in advance, every day, how long Joseph's going to live. He knows that Mary will still be there 30 years from now to watch her boy get killed. There are a lot of texts that talk about what Christ went through. This one talks about what Mary's going to go through. How do you watch your boy get nailed to a piece of wood? Mostly, usually, at eye level, so that your mockers could taunt you, and you could make eye contact with you. Usually naked. Usually the beard plucked out first. Death minus one, the lashes. How do you watch that happen to your boy? And you can't leave. If you leave, now he's alone during the whole thing. So there's biblical evidence. Mary was there. Mary Magdalene was there. John the Apostle stayed close by. There were just a small group of people that stayed with him and had to watch and had to listen because at least he won't be alone if we stay here with him. And Simeon is saying this when Jesus is eight days old. God apparently knows what he's up to. God became human to take the punishment for our treason. That's why he became human. Look at what Paul says in the book of Romans. This is about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He was handed over to die because of politics. No? Hmm. He was handed over to die because he made the wrong enemies at the wrong time. See, if those things are true, then an atheistic approach to the storytelling of Jesus' life can be perfectly viable. That is the right now Discovery Channel narrative about the death of Jesus. His political opponents didn't like him. They got him crucified. Isn't that so sad? But a man who saw Jesus face to face says he was handed over to die because of our sins. That's a lot less fun, isn't it? There is not a soul on earth that in some way wants that to be true. Not at first. I don't want to be the reason that Jesus was nailed to a cross. I don't want to think of myself as anything less than kind of, you know, awesome. I'm not sure I'm philosophically comfortable with the concept of sin. But if I am comfortable that there is wrongdoing, there have to be worse people on earth than me. And yet that hour seems really broad. Good thing the sentence keeps going. He was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, so, right, more than a ceasefire, he adopted his enemies back as his friends. We've been made right in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. He's talking about people who have trusted the cross to make them right with God, not their own good works. I did lots of good stuff, I gave lots of money, I did really cool things, I was nice to everybody. No. Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Jesus did it, you and I did not deserve it. Paul's being super clear. Where we now stand. That's a really critical phrase, this is out of the notes. Paul doesn't say that there's this undeserved privilege that we will stand one day. He's saying that if you love Jesus, you are already right now in a place of undeserved privilege, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. See, we have to see, we like the end there, sharing God's glory, but what's the process to get there? By God's grace grace, human beings put their faith in God's way of reconciling God and man. We put faith in Christ's cross to wash away sin, not my own effort, my white-knuckled, I'll-try-harder effort, which is exhausting and gives no assurances that you ever did enough. When we depend on Jesus' death to make us alive spiritually, that's when our peace with God is restored. Period. Um, So, I'm always torn about the amens. I love it when you guys help me preach, but I know that this is just not all accepted in our world, and so I don't pretend that everyone in the room believes this. I'm going to do my best to make the case. If you were with us a few months ago, uh, you caught this already, but everyone else, I want to bring you along for the ride. There's this fascinating conversation in John chapter 3, between a really religious guy named Nicodemus and Jesus. And Jesus has been healing people and performing miracles. And uh, Nicodemus is part of the religious elite of the Jewish culture of the day. And he's got to figure out what he thinks of this guy. And so at nighttime, he, he arranges a meeting and he gets together. And in that conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've been born once of a woman To be spiritually alive, you have to be born again, this time of the spirit. There has to be a spiritual birth. There's already been a physical one. But what about your soul? And what Jesus said is perfectly aligned all the way back to Genesis 3, that at a soul level, humanity died. At a soul level, we chose an oppositional relationship with our creator. We cut ourselves off from the author of life. So what do you get? death and Jesus said look something is going to have to happen dramatically inside you for you to be spiritually alive again and what Nicodemus did not know during that conversation is that in less than three years Jesus was going to go to a cross and pay for Nicodemus' sins Jesus knew. Every single human being is working right now to justify their own existence on this little blue marble. Some of you know the story of Eric Liddell. Um, He was made famous because he was... Chosen in the Berlin Olympics, everybody thought he was going to win the hundred meter dash that was his thing that was his event and as a devout christian, he decided i 'm not going to compete because the race was scheduled on a Sunday, and that was his conviction that he wasn 't going to do that on Sundays. Everyone hears that part of the story, but what the part that they don 't hear is about his good friend who traveled with him and was also competing and uh, because they were runners and they were friends there was trust there. They talked about things of faith, even though his friend uh, didn't really know what he thought of God or any of that. And in some conversation at some point, Eric asked him, asked his friend, you know, what does running mean to you? And his friend replied, it's everything. I've only got 10 seconds to justify my existence. And that breaks my heart. When I see women out there taking lewd pictures of themselves and trying to get 30 million followers, treating themselves cheaply, I I see someone who's trying to justify their own existence. Am I valuable? Am I beautiful? Am I worthy? Does anyone care? When people pursue power in the name of politics and being a public servant. I've got to do enough good and I've got to have power if I can do those good things, so vote for me. I see someone trying to justify their own existence. Why am I here? If I am primordial sludge, I don't like that. That makes me worthless. Can I somehow achieve something in this world that matters? And whatever you or I lean on, deeply lean on, of this is why I'm allowed to soak up a certain amount of space, carbon, water, and oxygen on this planet. Whatever your reason is, is your God. That is your ultimate. Because your mind, and more importantly, your spirit cannot tolerate tolerate the idea Of you being meaningless and worthless. And you should not have to tolerate the thought that you are meaningless or worthless because it's not true. St. Augustine said 1700 years ago God's love toward a human being is like sunlight that comes to a flower the flower responds and opens up and thrives under this consistent light and heat you have value because your creator loves you you have value because your creator made you and he is ultimate his sovereignty he's that big so when he is overall and he says you have value That's the end of a very short discussion. So my performance is not needed for me to have value. I do not have to take yet another picture of me and my kids showing that I'm crushing it in parenting and get it out on social media so everybody can like and see that I'm a great parent. My performance as a parent has nothing to do with God's love of me. I do not have to go be the awesome husband because as soon as I'm awesome, I will have value. No. No. I do not have to climb the corporate ladder and earn a certain figure that's in my mind that when I earn that amount of money, I will have value. No. If anything in the whole world, justified your existence? It's Jesus saying to the Father, Father, I don't want to go through this, but not my will be done, your will be done. Oh yeah, I'll die for them. You want to know how much you're worth? Please, please, please. Do not allow Jesus Christ to give up everything for you on a cross and then disregard what he did. I know that for some of you, you've never heard this before. I know that this is weird. I know that it is spiritually offensive if you're not comfortable with the idea of you being a sinner. I know this is crazy. Listen, everybody would be a Christian already if this was an easy pill to swallow. We would have not been persecuted the last 2,000 years if this was an easy pill to swallow. But I wanna plead with you nonetheless. You have worth, you have value, and Jesus screamed it from the top of his lungs as he died for you. Is God still your enemy? I've taken you through the journey. We were at peace with God in the garden. We joined Satan in a rebellion against God. We chose war. All of humanity has been in a state of war except if God reach out. And he has. And part of the reason that some of us, deep in our bones, do not want peace with God and will not accept the terms of his peace treaty is that God creates peace through surrender and I don't always like that the problem is that we like the idea when we say oh he's a good good father we sing along and we get warm fuzzies and we cry some tears oh yeah God's a father what a great idea except we forgot how many times growing up our father violated our sovereignty those of you guys who've been here, I've told you a story or two these last few months. Gabriel, my 15-month-old son, with all his needs met, he will scream like some horrible thing just happened, because I want to, are you ready, change his diaper. Where did that distrust come from? Huh? It's going to be so much better for you after we get this diaper nice and clean. It's going to be good. And I do not meet my son halfway. I'm not going to leave half of the mess in the diaper. This is a 50-50 partnership, Gabes. You get half of what you want. I'll get half of what I want. I'll clean half of your derriere and put the diaper back on. And yet we will arrogantly thumb our nose at the creator and say that he has to treat us as equals. When he has said, I am not your equal, I'm your father. And you grabbed a sword a long time ago and you got it pointed at me and I want you to surrender, lay down your sword. God creates peace through surrender. That's how sovereigns work. He's the king, not a president. He's a king, not a senator. He is a king, not an ambassador. He is a king. He is a king, and he is a king. You don't get to vote for him. You don't get to vote against him. He shows up on a horse one day with a sword because he's a king. That's what kings do. Will you today, it's my job to tell you the truth, it's your job to respond. Will you choose to remain at war with God? This church and every Christian church on planet earth, we are pleading with you to put down your sword and stop fighting God. He loves you too much for you to fight him. There's just no need. There is no need. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to share one little... with us before we go. I'm going to pray that God will move in our lives today because of what his word says. And I'm going to share one last thing with you. Lord Jesus, would you loudly, clearly, and effectively communicate your love to us today through your cross, and through your empty tomb. In the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said, Amen.